Hey everybody, welcome to the Pursue God podcast. I'm Brian, that's my beautiful wife, Tracy, and today we're gonna be in week number four of our series that we're calling Anxious for Nothing. Today we're gonna talk about when people make you anxious. Now, throughout this series, we've been going through the anxiety chapter in the Bible, Philippians chapter four, and today we're gonna back all the way up to the beginning of the chapter. It's interesting, this kind of gives us the context for everything that we've been studying so far about anxiety from Philippians 4 verses 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and everything that we've been doing so far. But if you back up to verses 2 and 3, here's what it says. Paul's writing, Now I appeal to Euodia and Syntyche, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. Now, what's happening here in this passage is it's showing us that there was clearly some kind of disagreement between these two believers in the early church. And Tracy, I think it's interesting that it makes it here into the Bible. So here we are all these years later, thousands of years later, we're talking about anxiety. We're in the anxiety chapter and Little do you know that the context for all of it could possibly be relational anxiety, like anxiety between two people that we don't know anything else about except for that they had some kind of a disagreement in the church. Yeah, it's clear that whoever they were, they were key players in the church in Philippi, that Paul had depended on him, had co-labored with them. They were they were leaders. They were women of influence. And we find that they have some kind of a disagreement that Paul is admonishing and saying, let's get this figured out. I imagine because like in today's time and space, when people are at odds, it affects the entire community, the entire church. So this, this is Paul saying, hey, let's get this figured out. Let's deal with whatever that disagreement was. Now, before we get into some real practical steps for people who are watching this or listening to this because they have relational anxiety in their life, we're going to get real practical about how to settle your disagreements. But before we do that, I thought, Tracy, we could maybe warm up with some categories. I guess you would call, we would call this categories of relational anxiety. You've got this first category of people feeling like they have to walk on eggshells all the time. Maybe some people can relate to that. Relationships can be really stressful. I'm sure every person listening to the podcast, watching the video can immediately think of situations that cause them angst. And so that first example of the eggshells is that person in your life that maybe is just really sensitive, maybe is easily offended. And so in relationship with them, whether you're grabbing a cup of coffee or it's you know Thanksgiving dinner and you just go into the situation like, okay, I don't wanna say anything that's gonna offend them or set them off or hurt their feelings. So you're just kind of like, what's the least amount of information I need to say? Or you just, you're planning the whole conversation in advance because you're walking on eggshells. You yep. just you just are not comfortable with that relationship and how they may respond to you. And I would imagine most people have a relationship like that. Maybe it's with a parent, maybe it's with a sibling or a friend or whatever. And most people would just say, whatever, I'll just keep walking on eggshells. But we're going to see today that actually that's not the best way to handle it. There's a better way 
to handle that kind of relational anxiety because it's just going to create more and more anxiety the more you're around that person. And we're going to look today and see what scripture has to say about it. Now, related to this walking on eggshell situation is, everybody knows this too, the elephant in the room situation, right? When you've got someone in your life relationally who isn't willing to talk about a a certain topic or a certain thing. Yeah, I mean, can that be any more awkward than when you know you walk into a situation and there's been a disagreement, there's been hurt feelings, and the other person doesn't want to talk about it. Or you, or you show up at the event together and, and you know, okay, this could be awkward. We we got in an argument a couple days ago. Um, are we going to address it? Or are we going to just pretend? Are we just going to act like nothing happened? That elephant in the room can be an extremely anxious feeling when you're just like, I, I, I don't know, do I just slide against the wall and just kind of maneuver around the room? Or are we going to deal with this thing? And this is usually, a lot of times these first three relate where, Maybe you feel like you have to walk on eggshells and so there's an elephant in the room and really at the end of the day, that just is going to be a ticking time bomb for you because at some point it's got to come out. Well, and especially if the person that you have conflict with knows how to push your buttons, Mm -hmm. maybe is a little passive aggressive, kind of has things that they say that kind of dig at you. And so you're internalizing all that. You're already feeling anxious. Now they're saying things or implying things and... It's just making you feel like you're going to explode. And that's that's obviously not going to lead to a good way of dealing with conflict, but it's kind of the reality of what's making you feel anxious. And I've got to say to the men out there listening to this, that, that this is the one that you probably can relate to. Because, I mean, not that it's only men, but a lot of times, I know for me, this was true for me, this is true for my dad, the men in my family, is we stuff it, we don't deal with it. And really, we talked about this earlier in the series where... The, the anxiety cycle is you, you're triggered by anxiety. And today we're going to talk about how people can be the trigger, right? So there's someone that triggers anxiety for you. Again, maybe it's because you have to walk on eggshells. Maybe it's because there, there are issues that you're not willing to talk about. So what happens next in the cycle is you stuff it, right? And you avoid it. Well, when, when we're talking about relationships with people that you have to be around, spouse, kids, friends, whatever, family members... That's a ticking time bomb, and that's a recipe for more anxiety in your life, more relational anxiety. Maybe you think you're being the bigger person by just sweeping it under the rug and extending grace, extending grace. But Tracy, it's not always extending grace, is it? If Sometimes it's not that. Sometimes it's just you're not, you're not healthy relationally, and you're not willing to do the important things that are necessary to have a good, healthy relationship and settle your disagreements. Well, yeah, for a lot of people, especially if kind of your fight language is your withdrawer, you're a person that's like, conflict's not comfortable to me, so I'll just take it, I'll sweep it, I'll just get out of the situation, I don't want to deal with it, because it's scarier to you to actually have a conversation or in a good way, confront someone and say, hey, you know, how this is going has just been really hurtful to me. So you just want to avoid it at all costs. And and the truth is, especially in the relational anxiety, we can think that we're avoiding it and stuffing it and moving on, but we're storing it in our hearts. And so what happens is then we just bring it to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And eventually you're, you're going to explode. Now, the next one is called triangulation. And this is where 
There are two people in your life that you love, you have a relationship with, they have a conflict, and triangulation is when they kind of pull you into it and really essentially kind of tr try to get you to take a side, right? Yeah, and that might be very typical in your, you know, family gatherings at the holidays or whatever. That other family members are in a dispute of some kind, and so now they're trying to pull you in to take sides with them. You know, you come with me to this thing and let's confront this person, or you watch and you see how they behave and you'll, you'll see it my way. And it just becomes kind of an ugly triangulation situation where now nothing's being resolved in the actual conflict between those people. Now you're involved and now you might be making both people mad by trying to choose a side or not choose a side. And the point is it creates anxiety, right? It creates relational yes. anxiety, certainly for you, but probably for those other two people as well. And then the last one, and there are certainly more than just five examples of things that cause relational anxiety or social anxiety. The last one is finger pointing. And finger pointing is when, when the other person, or maybe you do this too, you say, well, the problem is all yours. Like it's 100% your problem. None of it's my problem. And the truth is, when people do finger pointing, it just always leads to more relational strife, not less, <coughs> more anxiety, not less anxiety in the relationship. Yeah, to me, this is the one that's the hardest. Um, because when we're upset and our feelings are hurt and we're in a conflict with someone and we're feeling anxiety about that, if we feel like then that they think they're more right and you're more wrong, I mean, that just creates even more anxiety of like, well, wait, I mean, my feelings are hurt and I feel justified in how I feel, but now you're acting, I'm trying to bring something to you, but you're acting like it's all on you. And it just, that to me is the hardest one. That's, that's the dynamic that creates the most anxiety for me. All right, so now that we've kind of got you warmed up and feeling anxious about relationships, maybe, maybe you can identify two or three or even all five of these. Maybe you have relationships where all five of these are a, a dynamic of the relationship. And so that's probably why you're watching this video or you're listening to this podcast is because you wanna learn how to avoid that kind of relational anxiety. And so what we're gonna do in this conversation today is we're gonna talk about how to settle your disagreements. Remember, that was exactly what Paul says in Philippians 4. He says, I want you to settle your disagreements. And this is an important thing for us as Christians to do. And we're going to give you four practical action steps that you can take in order to settle your disagreements. And the first one is a little bit obvious, but may maybe it's not something you've ever put into practice in your life as a Christian. And it's that you need to commit to being a peacemaker. And I, I want to put this, this scripture in your mind. I want you to think about Romans 12, verse 17. I love this passage. This to me is a good kind of memory verse when you're thinking about relational anxiety. Paul says this to the church in Rome, and we're going to spend a lot of time in Romans 12 and in Philippians 4 today, but he says, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. And so what Paul's saying there, essentially, He's saying that peacemaking is a core value for a Christian. Like you should do everything that you can to live in peace with everyone. Now we'll talk about that verse in just a second, but here's another one. He says a little bit later, Romans 12, 17, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Is there any fellowship together in the spirit? 
are your hearts tender and compassionate? And, you know, the answer, the obvious, these are rhetorical questions. I mean, Paul's trying to say, yes, I hope, I hope that there, there is fellowship. I hope that your hearts are tender and compassionate. But he says, if there is, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and one purpose. And so what Paul's talking about here, Tracy, is that we should be, as Christians, we should be committed to being peacemakers. Like our attitude shouldn't be, um, it's no big deal. Reconciliation, you know, harmony in a relationship with someone doesn't really matter to me. Paul's saying, no, it's a big deal. In fact, I would say that it's a, it's actually a sin then to disobey this, right? Because Paul's giving this as a command. To me, thinking about being committed to being a peacemaker, you know, there, there's a lot we can talk about with the do all that you can to make peace with people. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. But I also think the tender-hearted heart that we should have towards people is really the the starting point if we're going to be peacemakers, right? That are because in relationship stress and in conflict, when our feelings are hurt. Our natural bent is going to be, you hurt me, it's your problem, I'm the victim, I'm sad, I'm hurt, and we can just kind of store up and feed on those emotions and become very bitter and resentful and our hearts can be really hard. And so I think that if we're going to be committed to peacemaking and we're even going to have the ability to do all that we can to be at peace with people, it really does start with a heart that says, I have to be tender. I have to look at the other person and say, what I really want at the end of the day is for us to have peace. We may not totally agree on everything. You may not get every I'm sorry that you're looking for mm -hmm. or that they agree with every part of your perspective. But if our starting point is God calls us to be peacemakers, not to be pot stirrers, not to be at odds with people, then it really is where are we starting from? Our own heart. Do I have a heart that wants to make peace or do I have a heart that wants to kind of dig my feet in and say, you wronged me and I'm going to punish you now by not letting you, you know, make amends or I'm not even going to move towards you at all. And here's, to me, here's the craziest thing about this. I'm speaking to Christians for a second. I think sadly, Christians aren't good at this, which is to our shame. Like cr Christians should be the best at this of all the people, like when, if you put a non-Christian couple or family up next to a Christian couple or family, you, I would hope that the, the rest of the world would say, man, I love how that Christian family does relationships. They have peace, like they know how to do conflict well, which is really what we're talking about. We're talking about doing conflict well. Maybe you don't realize that's what we're talking about, but, mm -hmm. but Paul says, settle your disagreements. So what, what he's saying here, and, and again, I want you to I want you to look at what he says in verses two and three. He says, the reason I want you to settle your disagreement is because you belong to the Lord. In other words, your common faith, and it doesn't, we're not just talking about Christians with Christians, because maybe you're a Christian who needs to make peace with a non-believer. But I love what Paul says here. He's essentially saying the reason you should settle your disagreement is because you belong to the Lord. In other words, he's saying this is a core value. As a Christian, it's a core value. 
we as Christians should be good at making peace. We should be good at, um, I guess you would call it emotional intelligence, you know, being relationally harmonious with other people. Like we should be better at that than anyone, but jump on Facebook and actually, I think mm-hmm. you might argue that we're worse at it. <laughs> or, <Right. laughs> or look at, a ch- you know, maybe a ch- in a, ch- a typical church, especially if it's a little bit of an kind of inwardly focused church, and you're going to probably find people that are famous for strife and they're famous for disagreements. In fact, probably to the point where the, the outside world doesn't really even want to be a part of the church anymore, right? Yeah, to me, as I kind of studied and was looking at this passage and thinking about what we were going to be talking about today, I just, I was struck by, you know, because you belong to the Lord, that through all the chapters in the in the book of Philippians, Paul is really calling and reminding the church, like who you belong to, right? He talks about that we're citizens of heaven. He talks about that we should be shining lights that stand out as different, as you were just saying, Brian that we should um, be like Christ because of our unity in him, that we should act different and look different. And that's what I'm saying, that that starting point of that, if we're peacemakers, that we have, we're gonna talk about this more in a minute, the mind of Christ, right? That we're humble, that we're tender, that we, because we belong to the Lord, that that above all else, even above the hurt that's happened, even though we might feel like we were more wronged than we wronged somebody else, because we belong to the Lord, Christian to Christian, you should make peace. That should be our starting point. Now, there's a lot that goes into this, but that should be our starting point. And when, and when Paul says to do everything that we can, right? There's still going to be some of those situations if the other person isn't able to get to that place of wanting to make peace. Okay, that's for them. That's on them. But for us, our starting point that we should always in every relationship that brings us anxiety or where we have had conflict, that our heart should be, let's commit to being peacemakers. What can I do to at least promote it, to start the conversation, to keep the conversation open? How do I pray for that person? What do I do in my own heart that it's tender towards that situation? Okay, so number one, commit to being a peacemaker. And then the second really practical step we encourage people to take is to put yourself in their shoes. When you're in a conflict with someone, put yourself in their shoes. So Paul says this, let's back up to Philippians 2, verse 4, just a couple chapters earlier. He's, and I wonder if he has these two people, Euodia and Syntyche, in mind when he says this. He says, don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. And so Paul is saying, and this is unnatural for, for all of us, Paul is saying, when you're in conflict, resist the urge to think about it just from your point of view and try thinking about it from their point of view, which would completely change the way that you do conflict. Yeah, you know, there's a great book. We have a topic on it in the Pursue God resources. It's about self-deception and conflict. And, And the way this book talks about it is that we can get in our own box where we just create the story of how we saw the conflict or the situation, and we kind of justify why we're thinking what we're thinking. We kind of feed those thoughts, kind of build that narrative. And lo and behold, we just kind of find ourselves in this little box of thinking, 
Okay, my perspective is the right perspective and the other person's perspective is wrong. And we're not even giving room for another perspective to come in. And man, even though that's my natural bent too, if we really wanna be peacemakers, then we do that next step of recognizing whoever you have relational angst with, whoever you're in conflict with, they have a perspective too. They have feelings too. And you may, you may not realize, you might not understand all their feelings, but that's why it's important to have conversation that if we work at peacemaking, I have to then be able to say, I need to care about what their perspective is. It doesn't mean I have to agree with all of it, but let's get the information out there and build a pool of meaning together that says, I wanna hear your perspective. I want the opportunity to give my perspective but I wanna to listen to what you have to say and I wanna recognize that you have feelings and you had an experience in this conflict as well. Otherwise, we just are deceived and we just kinda of live in our own little reality and likely your conflicts or your relational anxieties never gonna go away. Yeah, but the instinct for all of us is to get, our, get in our own little box and only view it from our perspective and not their perspective. And that's why I love one of these, and we talk about this in our marriage resources all the time, but one of these really practical steps you could take is called active listening. And active listening is where, you, you know, in a typical typical fight, you are waiting for your rebuttal. You're, you're waiting to answer back in a conflict. And so it's just two people in their boxes um, not really listening to each other because they're waiting to say say their thing right. and get their perspective out. So active listening breaks that cycle and it and it's where you say I know this sounds cheesy but it's where you say what I hear you saying is this. And man, if you've never tried that before, it takes a little bit of practice, but it's so helpful in a in a conflict to stop yourself from the rebuttal and firing back and saying, let me see if I understand what you're saying. Because number one, it gives them an opportunity to hear it back. Because maybe maybe you've got it right, and then they hear it back and they're like, oh yeah, that does sound kind of dumb. I'm being unreasonable here. Or maybe you try to say it and, it you, and you realize you're not really hearing them and then they can correct you and they can say, no, that's not what I'm saying. Let me try again. Let me tell you what I'm saying. And then you keep doing this until you're saying what they're saying. And again, Tracy, like you said, it doesn't mean you're agreeing with it. You're not saying I agree with you on this point. But what you are saying is, I want to at least be able to articulate your perspective. Because if I can't articulate your perspective, there's going to be really little chance for us to settle our disagreement. Well, and that's the thing. I, I mean, again, to me, that's the challenge. Like when Paul talks about that we should be humbled and have the mind of Christ, like he talks about in chapter two. I mean, Jesus is the ultimate example of how mm -hmm. he humbled himself. He didn't stand on his rights and say, don't talk to me like that. Don't treat me like that. You know, I'm God. That in in our relationships, that we have to care about what the other person's perspective is. Or else, how do you be tender towards someone? Mm -hmm. How could you work towards peacemaking if it doesn't matter what the other person's perspective is? Because I'm so concerned about being right and justifying my actions and my words that I don't even see you as a person with thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think this where where this passage in Psalm 139 is really helpful. It's like a prayer from the psalmist. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. 
Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. And what I like about this, and this maybe is a good prayer for you to pray before you enter into a hard conversation with somebody. But what it's what I love about this is it's the psalmist is owning his part of the problem. It You know, we talked about finger pointing and, you know, it's all your fault and none of it is my fault. It's easy to do that. Maybe the other person's doing it to you, but you're probably doing it to them too, right? And so you're in your boxes. And so that's why this prayer is so helpful. It's it's saying to God, God, I want you, I'm, I'm opening the door for you to point out something in me that offends you. Like I'm I'm acknowledging that my anxious thoughts, and maybe th- maybe this is what's happening, is your relational anxiety is is tied to the fact that you're never going to God in relationship with God and saying to him, God, I need you to show me where I'm wrong right here because I might be wrong. I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt it, but I might be wrong, right? But, the but, pre- but when, you, when you have that attitude, you come to God with that attitude, you can deal with that and God, maybe God can give you that, what you said, Tracy, that tender, compassionate heart toward the other person. Well, in the preceding verses and in, in, in Psalm 139 are all about how God saw us and formed us in our mother's mm-hmm. womb and planned out every day of our life. Like the whole setup of that is God knows us better than we know ourselves. Mm-hmm. So at the end here of this chapter to say like, search me, and show me anything in me that's offensive. It's because God knows everything about us. He sees it all and he sees the conflict. He sees our relationships with other people. And so let's first be tender before the Lord, right? To be able to say, God, you know me, you know me. (laughs) You know everything about me, every hair on my head. You tell me, you show me where my heart might be wrong here, where maybe I stepped out of line a little bit. Let me be first tender towards God's opinion because then I'm going to be more ready to be tender towards another person and their perspective. Yeah, and the truth is, especially in marriage, husbands, if you can learn in your relationship with God, if you can learn to be humble and teachable in your relationship with God, like the psalmist there in Psalm 139, it takes the pressure off of your spouse to have to point out everything that offends them. If you go to God and say, God, why don't you point out everything that offends you? You invite God to point that out, then then probably your spouse doesn't have to do so much of the heavy lifting in that particular area. <laughs> and that's going to be so good for your marriage is that both of you have a relationship with God where you're tender hearted toward God, you're humble toward God, so that when you do that, it's you recognize that this conflict is not all their fault and you're able to own your part, you're able to put yourself in their shoes and articulate their point of view and maybe your eyes get opened to, to how you own part of the problem also. And a lot of times when you do that, then they'll own the problem as well. And then that leads to the third thing. And I think this is so important. And I, it drives me crazy that so few people, even Christians, that so few Christians understand this principle. And here it is. Talk to people, not about people. Don't talk to everyone else in your world about what they did that's wrong. Talk to them. Learn to settle your disagreements by going to the person you have a disagreement with 
rather than doing sort of the cheap and easy thing, which is to go and talk to everybody else about the problem. And a lot of times they don't even realize uh, that you've got a problem with them because you don't have the courage to go to them. That's why Paul said, or Jesus said this in Matthew 18. We call this the Matthew 18 protocol. Verse 15, Jesus said, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. And if the other person listens and confesses it, then you have won that person back. And I love that Jesus, 2,000 years ago, gives us this super practical relational advice that, man, I tell you, if people would if people would follow this advice, I think there'd be a ton less relational anxiety in our homes. Yeah, so if you kind of go back to what our examples were of maybe some of the relational angst that you have, you know, whether it's the person that you feel like you walk on eggshells with, or it's the elephant in the room, or the finger pointer, you know, whatever, whatever it is, that the the best form of making peace, right? If that's kind of our baseline that we should be peacemakers, do everything that we can, then even for those dynamics that so we're able to go to that person and say, hey, I I care about you. I want to have a good relationship with you, but I just feel like I'm treading lightly. I don't want to offend, but I, you know, I want to feel like we can have an open and honest relationship. Can we, can we talk about that? You know, to go to the person to kind of state how you're feeling about it, but leaving room that maybe they see it differently. Maybe you've made them feel unsafe. Mm -hmm. That's why they walk on eggshells. Okay, let's talk about that. How could I respond better? But this idea that we go to the person that we have the angst with, that we can identify what we feel anxious about, not in an accusatory way, but in a heart, right, that comes to make peace that we can talk to one another, we can start to address the issues. That's the best thing, rather than pulling other people in, right? That triangulation thing or whatever, where we go talk to a million other people about it and, and then stew in our perspective again, right? Still in our box, like, and then people are like, yeah, that's terrible. Yeah, and they kind of feed that and we just keep eating, <laughs> eating more of our own perspective. I mean, it's not a bad thing to go get godly advice sometimes if you need some help to think something through, but you need to go to the person that you have the issue with. Just like it says in Matthew 18, to go privately to try and talk about it. If that doesn't work, then bring a trusted person with you. But there is a process and a protocol that's right there in scripture that if we'd follow it, we would do much better in our relationships. Yeah, and let's go back to Romans 12 once again. We've already looked at some passages. It's a great chapter on relationships, especially Christian relationships. And Paul says this to the church in Rome, don't just pretend to love others. And I think there's a lot of that going on in our homes and in our churches. Don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong, which includes their sin and your sin. And it also includes gossip. It also includes talking behind someone's back. You should hate that. You should hate it when someone does it to you and you should hate it when you do it to someone else. He says, hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. And Tracy, I think that's what this step is all about. It's about when you talk to someone instead of about someone, then you're honoring someone. And when you're talking behind someone's back, when you're when you're uh, sort of tearing someone down to somebody else 
That's not honorable. That's not a godly thing to do. And t- far too much of that happens in Christian homes and in Christian churches, and it's just wrong. And we've, we've let people get away with it, and that's why I think relationships are not as healthy as they should be in our churches because, well, we, we think adultery is terrible, but we don't think dishonoring someone or gossiping or slandering is terrible. It's all terrible, and we should take a stand against it. So what that means is if somebody comes to you and starts bad-mouthing somebody else, I want you to hear this, Christians. If somebody comes to you and starts bad-mouthing someone else, you need to say to them, stop, stop, please stop. I do not, I do not want to participate in this conversation. And then you need to say to them, would you please go talk to that other person? That's the proper thing to do. Matthew 18, that's the proper thing. It's not right for you to talk to me. It's right for you to talk to them. And so I think you can help if you're being triangulated, you can help by saying no and stopping that gossip. Yeah, I mean, like you said, when when you think about honoring someone, I mean, if we go back to the previous step, that honoring someone means that you care about their perspective, that you're willing to listen to their perspective, that you're willing to try to put yourself in their shoes to see it from their angle. That then when it's time to come to the person to talk to them, that we still have to be honoring in that. I mean, there's nothing worse than feeling like, you know, you you hear through the grapevine or something else that people were saying something or were, were talking about you to something and then never come tell you. And you might have more information that might help to clarify things mm-hmm. or or maybe what, what's being said isn't even correct. But to me, this is something that I feel like if we could as Christians get better about this idea I mean, again, because in conflict and in relationship anxiety, your your feelings are hurt. So our natural bent's going to want to protect our own heart and to justify whatever we need to do because we've been hurt by someone. That if we can be reminded of, okay, to honor them means I need to come to that person and be honest about how they hurt me. To show that vulnerability, to be honest about that, to give that person the opportunity to to apologize or to say that was a misunderstanding or that didn't happen or whatever it is that we just become people that go to the source, go to the person that you're struggling with, try your best, do everything you can to promote peace in that relationship. Okay, so there's one more step that you sometimes have to take, and I think this is probably the hardest one, but sometimes this is what it comes down to. You need to be ready to absorb the offense. If you really want to be serious about settling disagreements, the truth is the other person might not be as serious as you. The other person might not be as connected to God, might not be as motivated to be relationally healthy, might not be as anxious to get rid of their relational anxiety. And so you might, at the end of the day, you might just have to be the one to absorb the offense. And Jesus is a perfect example of this. Philippians chapter four, Paul says this. Remember the context for this, he's just about ready to talk about anxiety in chapter four, but in chapter two, he's still laying some groundwork and he says to the people, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. He was born as a human being He died a criminal's death on a cross. So what that verse is saying essentially 
is that Jesus absorbed the offense for us. Rather than Jesus coming and asserting his rights and asserting his perspective and and saying, you're all wrong and I'm all right, which by the way, would be true for him, that we're all wrong and he's all right. He didn't do any of that. He humbled himself. Another passage in the Old Testament says that he was led like a sheep to the slaughter and he didn't say a word. You know what he's doing there? He's absorbing the offense. He's not, um, he's not sort of elevating justice, right? Which is Tracy, what a lot of us can do is we're like, it's just not fair. What you said is wrong. What you did is wrong. And so we get in our box and we feel like we're justified to keep this fight going. And maybe, maybe you are more right than they are, but at the end of the day, you've come to a place and maybe you've been at this for 10 years or 20 years. And because you're just standing strong on your perspective and they're standing strong on their perspective, I'm going to even concede that you're more right than they are. I'm still going to tell you that if you want to settle your disagreement, you just might have to absorb the offense like Jesus did. You might just have to shut your mouth and forgive and absorb the offense, even though they don't deserve it. Or, or you've tried to make peace. You've tried to have conversations. You just can't agree. You feel like you've tried to come their way. They haven't really moved your way at all. They, they really have that finger pointing where the percentage problem is. They think it's mostly you, not them. Then, yeah, at the end of the day, if I'm supposed to be a peacemaker, then I have to then absorb whatever they weren't willing to accept. Mm -hmm. And that's hard. But to me, that's what it comes back to step one about being committed to peacemaking is the mind of Christ is he humbled himself. He emptied himself of all of all of he of heaven, right? To come and to walk among us and subjected himself to treatment and disrespect and ultimately a criminal's death for us. And so as Christians, especially as Christians, if our mindset is to be models, right? As Paul admonishes us through the whole book that we're citizens of heaven, that at the end of the day, that this relationship, this conflict that I'm in, does it really matter if I prove myself to be totally right? Or is it better to make peace? Is it better to pray for that person and to wish them well, even if our relationship is never fully healed? Because ultimately eternity is what matters. And I want to stand before God and for him to be proud of me and the relationships, that he would see me as a peacemaker. And so it might just mean for some of us, it might just mean that we absorb the offense, that we say the mind of Christ, right? Because I belong to the Lord, I'm going to sacrifice my, my right to justice or, or being more right than wrong and that person seeing it or other people seeing it. Because as a believer, it's more important for me to be a peacemaker. Now, again, that doesn't mean that there aren't some of those relationships that, you know, it doesn't mean you skip down the lane with some people or that you um, are in a trusting relationship with someone. But I can certainly be in the same room with you. I can certainly treat you with honor and respect, even if we're not totally healed. And, and that's, I think, where we need to get to when we think about relationship anxiety is, am I ready? If I put myself before the Lord, you know, show me any offensive way in me, 
and I feel like I've tried to come and take responsibility for that and the other person doesn't want to do that or isn't ready to do that, that I can still have a heart that's for that person, that's still honoring to that person, that I'm now not talking to other people saying, well, I tried and they this and they said that. And we just say, I'm going to absorb the offense. I'm going to still be a peacemaker for this relationship. Yeah, and let's go back to Romans chapter 12 just one more time. Again, I encourage you to read that whole chapter. It's really helpful if you want to have the right mindset about relationships and settling disagreements and conflict resolution and all that. Romans 12, 14, he's talking about absorbing the offense. He says, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. This is just what Jesus did on the cross. There he is hanging on the cross. They're, they're crucifying him. They're wrong. He's right. The only sinless person, he's on the cross. What did Jesus say? Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He absorbed the offense. He extended grace and forgiveness even though they didn't deserve it at all. And this is what Paul's saying to the church in Rome. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. He's talking about absorbing the fence. If all else fails, all this other stuff, if all else fails, you commit to being a peacemaker. You put yourself in their shoes. You talk to them, not about them. You try to check all these things off and you're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to be the bigger, bigger person, all that stuff. At the end of the day, in order to settle your disagreement, you just might have to absorb the offense. You, might, you just might have to extend grace and pray that someday their eyes will be opened and they'll ask for forgiveness. And you might even have to forgive them if they don't ask for forgiveness. Now, I wouldn't say it like that, but just in your heart, you might need to absorb the offense and forgive them so that you can settle your disagreement. And, and I want to just leave, leave with one more passage. We've talked a lot about Philippians and Romans, but in 1 John 4, here's what, here's what John says about this. This is one of the last writings we have in the New Testament. And he says this, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Right? Because he said, settle your disagreements because you are in the Lord. So, so this is really what John is saying is love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So again, this is why we need to do everything possible. As far as it is up to us, as it says in one translation, as far as it is up to you, and it's not all up to you, but as far as it is up to you, make peace with everyone. Settle your disagreements. And you know what will happen is your relational anxiety will slowly begin to fade away. You know, because part of relational anxiety, and we talked about this previously in this series, is that you can't control, right? You're a control freak. A lot of relational anxiety is connected to control. You can't control that other person. And this is, this is exactly what Paul's getting at. This is exactly what John is getting at is you can't control them. So just love them. Just forgive them. Just try to look at it from their perspective. Just try to humble yourself in relationship to them. When they're imperfect, don't be shocked. We're all imperfect. And then when, when you need to, 
be ready to absorb the offense. Yeah, and just like Paul said there in chapter four, if we don't work at relationships, if we don't deal with our relational anxiety and, and find ways of being a peacemaker, then it's gonna create ripple effects in our life, in our families, in our friend groups, in our churches. Let's be committed to resolving conflict and relationship anxiety in, in healthy ways for the sake of unity. Now to talk about this with a family or a small group or a mentor, you can find resources, discussion questions, everything at pursuegod.org forward slash anxious.